This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Avery Wyman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Environmental Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Boria Sachs about his new book, Enchanted Forests, The Poetic Construction of a World Before Time, which was published by Reaction Books in 2023. Dr. Sachs is an author and lecturer at Mercy College in New York. He has published many books of scholarship, poetry, reference, translation, memoirs, and scholarship in other genres. He is perhaps best known for his work on animals and human culture, how they serve as basis for myths and legends, and how they serve as a means of exploring human identity. His latest book, Enchanted Forests, The Poetic Construction of a World Before Time, applies these ideas of human identity and myth-making to forests. He explores the meanings and cultural history of forests from the prehistory to the present, taking in Gilgamesh, Virgil, Dante, and the Gawain poet, medieval alchemists, and the Brothers Grimm, River Hudson painters, Latin American folklore, contemporary African novelists, and much, much more. Uh, Dr. Sachs, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I usually conduct these interviews in a fairly formulaic, I think, kind of template form. But your book was so different from a lot of academic literature, and really in the best way, I mean, that is the highest compliment um, I can give, that I thought we'd begin by just kind of chatting generally about your own background and how you came to be interested in this project. Well, um, you know, I I started studying literature. Uh, I uh, gradually became... uh, disillusioned with it, uh, and it was a feeling that within an all-human world, which is, after all, the world in which uh, most of our stories take place, there's a certain claustrophobia. Uh, I uh, felt that... um, adding animals greatly increases the range of possibilities and it's made uh, this literature and, and the study of literature much more vibrant and um, much more alive in a way uh, even more human uh, when there's nothing but people, then being one of them can't mean very much. But when you're aware that um, uh, there are so many other beings with uh, each uh, a different perspective on life and death, on time, uh, then... The cosmos seems much richer, and so does our writing about it. So how did you take kind of that interest and then decide to apply that to forests? Well, in a way, I think of trees as just another animal, and forests is another sort of community. 
uh, very profoundly different from uh, human beings and from their communities, but a community nonetheless. Um, research suggests that trees are in some mysterious way sentient, like human beings, like um, other creatures. Uh, they respond to sensual sim simulation, stimulation. They respond to light and uh, they exchange all sorts of chemical messages that we can barely even begin to interpret, that we only interpret in terms of um, what we view as very tangible needs and desires, but which might be much more nuanced than that. And writing about forests is really just an extension of the kind of writing that I've been doing for decades now. Right, which remind, or uh, I guess it leads me to my next question, which is about the kind of writing that you're doing. I mentioned at the top that I really enjoyed this book because it's so not written in the structure of a traditional kind of academic monograph that you get now, um, which for anyone who is like, read for comprehensive exams or spent a lot of time with academic literature knows that it can be like very, um, without, I guess, ruffling any academics that I've spoken to, like very templated um, for, for a specific reason, I think often for a good reason so that you can find your arguments quickly. But one of the things that I love the most about this book is that it is not that you really take your time to go to different places, um, entertain a whole bunch of different genres, a whole bunch of bodies of scholarship. So I did want to ask you how you decided to structure this book um, and what kind of thoughts you put into organizing it the way that you did. Well, uh, it's, I think, not much, so much of a matter of the organization. Uh, it's that I was willing to um, uh, incur the risk of including uh, lyricism and satire and other more literary elements in uh, what was uh, certainly in its structure an academic book. Um, again, um, this ties in with um, my emphasis uh, in so much of my writing on uh, animals and uh, their modes of perception. Uh, if you want to start to capture that, even a little bit of it, you have to uh, take risks and you uh, have to at least loosen some of the academic conventions. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of taboos about um, what kind of language and what kind of tone you can adopt and um, uh, how you should structure your work. And while I continue to follow some of them, uh, certainly in the basic outlines of the book, um, I don't do it so strictly as uh, most scholars would. Um, a lot of that, um, I think, is that uh, I was in on this at the beginning. Uh, I was really one of the first people who um, started to engage in what we now call anthrozoology or animal studies or human animal studies uh, when people um, in around the early uh, 80s started to uh, place more emphasis on uh, other forms of life, uh, particularly on what we call animals, uh, in uh, what had been uh, 
very uh, exclusively uh, human modes of discourse, uh, it seemed to open up a vast range of unexplored and even unsuspected possibilities. There were a few years in which everything seems possible. Then came animal studies and became um, another academic area among others with its conventions and its firm and expectations and um, the possibility, the range of possibilities became much more limited. I think that because I was in on this from the very beginning and because I made uh, something of a reputation at the particular historical moment that I did, um, I'm really granted uh, a degree of freedom that uh, somebody who is starting to write her PhD probably would not have. Um, that uh, a lot of the time people are willing to um, accept uh, lyrical passages and satirical passages in an academic work from me that they might not accept from somebody who was uh, completely unknown. Uh, well, uh, on the one hand, I have to say that's an, in many ways an unfair advantage that I have. You know, uh, I um, kind of wish that uh, people would be more accepting for everybody. On the other hand, if I do have that advantage, I would like to take full advantage of the advantage and uh, gradually over the years, I've been uh, letting loose more and more, a little bit at a time and uh, doing things that uh, I might not have dared to do um, uh, a few decades or a few years ago. And um, that's, I suppose, become part of my style, part of my signature. I very much share your sentiment um, that I wish that scholars at every every stage within and without the university um, would be both able and desire to kind of take leaps in their form in the way that you do, um, because it does make for just such a more dynamic reading experience. And when you're reading with a dynamic brain, you're actually retaining information instead of scanning over you know, isotropic parts of academic literature that, you know, you've taught yourself just to identify the introduction has the arguments here, here, and here, and here's the roadmap to the entire book. And then if I go to the last paragraph, I can pick out what every chapter was about and be done with this book in an hour. Um, I want to move on to kind of the content of the book itself. And we're talking about kind of the beautiful um, ways in which this book is kaleidoscopic and there's so much in it, um, which means we're not going to be able to talk about every facet of the book in this conversation, just because we won't have enough time. But I do want to talk about a few select um, a select dimensions of the book, um, some of the arguments that you make and some of the case studies and time periods that you go over. But before we kind of home in on more specific aspects of the book, I'm wondering if you can tell us in the most broad sense what forests have represented in literature made by humans and also what it means for kind of human identity making? Well, uh, as I documented the book, there's been a, a huge range. There's the Rococo forest, there's the Gothic forest, there's the classical forest and so on. But to um, uh, simplify, I would say that in just about every case, the forest represents some uh, understanding of our primeval beginnings. It um, is sort of like 
the cosmos before the Big Bang, to use an analogy. Uh, it's where we think of everything as beginning. It's uh, this uh, primal realm before we divided the cosmos according to time and space, before we uh, divided uh, study into subjects and uh, before we started making distinctions between human beings and animals and plants, uh, the forest in one form or another, and once again, there's enormous variety, represents our primeval beginnings. Right. And is that in the sense you mentioned kind of like in the sense of civilization, but is like primeval beginnings in like, this is before humans organized themselves into societies or also before humans kind of developed specific emotional states. There was kind of, I felt an aspect of that in the book about innate human sexuality, about that kind of stuff where the forest also represents something individual that is primeval. Uh, it's both, it's both. Uh, again, um, uh, the way we understand our origin depends on the way we understand our identity. So within the uh, basic parameters uh, that I've mentioned, uh, there are all kinds of interpretations of what the original forest is. Uh, it can be dark and dangerous and mysterious. It can be playful. Uh, it can be erotic. It can be all sorts of things. And, um, you know, no one of them is entirely universal or definitive. And that is part of its fascination. You spend a considerable amount of the book um, discussing a variety of beings of the forest. So this ranges from the quote unquote wild man of the forest to different types of lords and ladies of the forest. Can you explain how different beings of the forest have often symbolized humans at these kind of elemental and vital states that we're talking about? And of the beings that you go over in the book, of which there are several, um, which kind of archetype is the most compelling to you and why? Well, I think one uh, virtually universal archetype is the, what I call in the book the Lord or Lady of the Forest. Um, we uh, inevitably uh, have difficulty relating to the forest because it's so overwhelming because the life that it contains is so various and ever-changing and uh, continuously different as we walk through it. And so um, to relate to the forest as a whole, we have to anthropomorphize it. Um, just as we anthropomorphize uh, divinities, and truly almost everything else. The Lord or Lady of the Forest is a being uh, who one encounters in the depths of the forest, that whose hut or whose dwelling uh, one finds when one has left the world of humankind behind. And sometimes this figure is conceived as male, sometimes as female, sometimes as a bear or another animal. The um, original uh, instance of this, so far as we know, is the um, giant Humbaba in the epic of Gilgamesh, 
uh, written uh, sometime in the uh, second or third millennium before the Common Era, um, who is basically a uh, representation of the forest of Lebanon. Uh, and he is killed by the heroes Enkidu and Gilgamesh in what is uh, a sort of fall from grace, um, a bit analogous to the uh, fall in the biblical story of humankind. Uh, the lord or lady of the forest uh, reappears several times as uh, Morgan Le Fay, uh, you know, as as a bear uh, in 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 many different guises, and uh, uh, as for example, a deer, a deer that represents Christ in many medieval tales, uh, and uh, the basic structure has a certain consistency. Um, if the protagonist can somehow come to an agreement with the Lord or Lady of the Forest, then, um, well, uh, he or she can live alongside the forest. If not, well, they, they may despoil the forest and uh, negative consequences almost uh, invariably follow. Yeah, you mentioned um, just speaking now about the Epic of Gilgamesh and this kind of iteration of the Lord of the Forest that one interpretation of the ending of this particular section of the story is that it's kind of a fall from grace tale, kind of like a Garden of mm -hmm. Eden. You know, you lose your access to this very primeval, kind of sacred, almost kind of ineffable human nature relationship. So what do you mean, I guess, by a fall from grace story? Like, what are the consequences for the characters um, that come about via their execution of kind of the forest, the Lord of the Forest character? Well, the... Uh... The basic consequence is uh, an alienation from the natural world, uh, a separation from the natural world, a sense of uh, great distance between us as human beings and the other creatures of the forest. Uh, this can manifest itself in... Uh, many ways. Uh, it can be largely environmental, and it certainly is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, destruction of the forest of Lebanon is followed immediately by a plague in which one of the heroes is killed. Uh, it is followed by a great drought. Um, it can also manifest itself in spiritual ways as well as um, a very deep-set discontent um, with uh, uh, human destiny, uh, with a feeling that somehow uh, we just don't belong and uh, the, the even without articulating it with a great deal of precision, uh, that um, somehow uh, we are being punished for a transgression, that we must uh, not only atone for, but uh, the nature of which is for us incompletely no. Do you think that kind of like spiritual and ethical undertone um, exists in contemporary literature about the destruction of forests of climate change? Or do you think like that is not something that has made its way into modern literature yet? Oh, it's uh, 
it pervades contemporary literature uh, completely. I mean, it's it's always there. I would say, in one form or another, um, we don't really uh, have a universally accepted vocabulary for speaking of it. Uh, we kind of ease our way around the subject, but I think it's always implicit. Um, and uh, part of the reason for the book is to uh, help give people um, the conceptual apparatus to uh, investigate it a little bit more completely. Yeah, I agree completely. I think of, you know, books like John Steinbeck to a God Unknown. I think it's like a pretty good, more contemporary, pretty contemporary. I mean, maybe not, you know, 21st century, or you mentioned the overstory in your book as just like contemporary literature in which these themes are very um, propulsive um, in the novel for one way or another. Uh, I want to ask you about a different facet of the book now. So many of the quote unquote texts that you analyze in the book um, are stories or oral traditions, but you also devote considerable amount of energy to visual art um, and especially paintings. Um, so in one chapter in particular, you analyze what the forest means in different time periods. So in the classical period, in Rococo period, and in Gothic period art. And I'm wondering if you can kind of just take us through these three different periods and explain a little bit how the forest changes from time to time. Well, uh, first of all, there's uh, the classical period. Uh, uh, and you have uh, the Thor forest as a constant setting and um, painters like um, uh, Claude and uh, Rosa. Uh, this, for uh, Claude, um, it is... Um, well, uh, basically a, a, a place of harmony. Uh, you have uh, the weather and you have the sunlight uh, subtly filtering through the distant trees. You have the uh, scene almost always at dawn or dusk in the uh, gentle uh, moderate light, and uh, the forest is a place of harmony. Uh, you have small figures uh, that are usually Italian peasants or, or Greek gods, um, and uh, uh, you have ruins uh, usually ruins of Greco-Roman times uh, as a sort of reminder that um, the uh, artifacts of humanity don't last forever, but the forest does. Uh, then you have the Rococo forest. Now, this is um, the forests of the stories of Charles Perrault, in Tales of Time Past. This is a forest originally centered on the French court of uh, Louis the uh, 15th. And it's a forest in which um, young aristocratic ladies and gentlemen enjoy a sort of eternal adolescence where they are constantly flirting among the trees where there are statues of venus and cupid and um ruins probably fake ruins just about everywhere and the statues themselves seem to be alive and are observing the people um it's basically a vision of humankind before the fall. Then you have the Gothic forest, uh, the forest of painters like Friedrich, uh, the, what we perhaps more than 
any other style uh, identify with the forest today where it's uh, filled with ruins, not so much of classical temples, but of, of churches and um, where uh, the trees themselves are dark uh, and forbidding and mysterious and uh, seem almost primeval, but are still filled with ruins of a bygone time. Uh, and uh, really, uh, these are three styles that are then uh, adopted eclectically by uh, painters over the next few centuries by um, the Hudson River School, for example, of painters in the United States who took as their mission to um, portray what they believed was the primal world of the, the Americas, what they saw as the New Eden as an, a second chance for humankind before it was completely destroyed. And the classical and um, Rococo and Gothic forest became in many cases stages in which they tried to uh, record the history of the forest, which they were witnessing as gradually it gave way to uh, human settlements and the Americas became more and more like what Europe was. Yeah, your mentioning of the Hudson River painters, that kind of movement in American art leads me into the next question I want to ask. Um, which is that another thing you spend considerable amount of time on in the book is this relationship between forests and power, which I guess we can scale up to more broadly, just a, a discussion of discourse and power, which is what pretty much everything is about. If you were to ask me, you know, relationship circular between knowledge and power, discourse and power is what a lot of humanities scholarship just is based on. Um, and you spend a lot of time thinking about forests and power, especially in the capacity of thinking about divine right and dominion and control and kind of hierarchies of who has power, who has legitimacy, who has worth and who doesn't and how those categories get inscribed um, by people. So the sections that you discuss this topic include sections in which you discuss feudalism and monarchical power embedded in the tradition of the hunt in medieval Europe, um, the kind of anthropocentric argument embedded in modern English gardens, and the justification of westward expansion in the United States, which is the connection um, to the Hudson River painting that we were just talking about. Um, for me personally, this is the most compelling part of the book, perhaps because it's what I've spent most of my time thinking about, but also just because I find it to be such a fascinating thing to think about. And I'm sure I could probably spend the rest of the day talking about it with you. Um, but for the sake of time, I wonder which of these cases, so the hunt or gardens or a westward expansion, you find the most compelling and can you walk it can you walk through it with us? Well, they're all very deeply interconnected. Uh, they're all stages, I think, in a uh, consistent trend whereby uh, people, particularly rulers, assert their dominion over the forest. Um, now, uh, in early medieval Europe, as uh, for the most part in pre-Columbian um, America, the forest was uh, essentially communal. Uh, that is to say, it was uh, understood like the water or the air or outer space, a domain in which there was no ownership and where 
the resources could be shared. Um, in uh, ancient Rome, just as uh, in uh, uh, America of the 18th and 19th centuries, you had to cut down the forest in order to claim land. But until you cut it down, the land belonged to everybody. And uh, a very important stage of that was when um, the Carolingian kings, uh, particularly in the reign of Charlemagne, yeah, um, started to assert their dominion over the forest. Um, that is to say, as God's representative on earth, the king um, could uh, assign these rights or uh, sell these rights and uh, you know, the right to, to forage, the right to uh, take firewood, uh, and so on. Uh, and this was a sort of colonialization of um, the uh, forest. This was uh, an assertion of what was becoming more and more the absolute power of the king. Now, um, I talk at some length about how this was ritualized in the hunt of the stag. The stag uh, was, in a sense, the lord of the forest. And hunting it in uh, a, a very specific way with a lot of very elaborate rules was a way of symbolically affirming the dominion of the king uh, or the lord. Uh, at the end of the hunt, um, the stag would be ritually divided up and, and killed and uh, all of the different parts of it would be given to participants in the hunt in accordance with their role, uh, including the dogs. And then the head would be symbolically uh, presented to the king. And again, this corresponds to the division of the forests into various rights and privileges, which then could be separated from each other and um, uh, uh, assigned as a, an indication of favor or, or marketed or sold. Uh, it was the very beginnings of um, the era in which the forest became a commodity, or rather a whole array of commodities that um, could be separated and exchanged and marketed and so on. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, the beginning of the modern era. Right. Yeah. To bring us into modernity, you mentioned there's a connection between these kind of different representations of power of the abstractions of groups in the forest. So if we're in kind of the medieval to early modern period, thinking about the ritualization of the hunt and the way that dominion over the forest is a very important example um, of the kind of creation of hierarchies for different groups of people, so different social groups that are being created by the expansion of the state. How would we see something like that in more recent modern history. So for expansion, for for example, in this westward expansion um, example that you go over at length towards the end of the book. Well, I think maybe the best example is the stories of Paul Bunyan. Uh, now they uh, began, began as folklore, 
but they were uh, quickly uh, marketed by a lumber company and uh, used to sell first wood and then vacations and um, restaurants and uh, gasoline. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, As you explained, you there's a very, yeah, a very uh, funny and, example in the book uh, about a gas station with a very iconic Paul Bunyan, Paul Bunyan statue that I believe is now missing an arm, <laughs> but is still there. <laughs> uh, anyway, please continue. All uh, right. Um, British Petroleum, uh, you know, it's, uh, with the same initials as Paul Bunyan in reverse order, but uh, nonetheless, um, uh, uh, at the time, and, and certainly when I was a little kid, uh, Paul Bunyan was considered the epitome of um, American folklore. Um, a uh, distinctive American figure whose stories could compare with uh, the Arthurian epics. But really, uh, Paul Bunyan does almost nothing at all. All he ever does is chop down trees on a prodigious level. Uh, he never... Uh, is seriously challenged by any adversary. Uh, he he never fails. Uh, he just goes on chopping and chopping and chopping. And that's really, when you come down to it, about it. And uh, in the Port Bunyan stories, um, the trees really have no value uh, whatsoever beyond commodities. Uh, neither do the animals. But um, the theme of the Paul Bunyan stories is a very simple one, and that is grandeur of scale. Um, you know, this was a time uh, when technology was... Uh, uh, able to uh, change uh, landscapes on a scale that had once seemed almost unimaginable, where people were digging huge canals and building roads. And uh, this was the time of uh, the great robber barons, the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans and the Carnegies and, and so on. Uh, and people were very taken with this, uh, the, the grandeur and ambition and scope of these new enterprises. They were intoxicated with their own power. And Paul Bunyan essentially is uh, a figure who embodies this sense of intoxication. Right. And then would it be fair, you think, to also say, like, in addition to symbolizing the sense of intoxication, also represents a particular kind, as you mentioned, just like prodigious expansion without consequence in a way that is really kind of inverse to you know, to go back to the Gilgamesh story that we were talking about earlier in which like the consequence of the destruction of the forest or the Lord of the Forest character is Edenic, is a fall from grace in which our characters are meant to feel a sense of deep sorrow and loss um, that they've severed a bond that they have with nature that they may never recover. In Paul Bunyan, there's no sense of consequence um, to say oh. that Paul Bunyan is just going to keep chopping his way <laughs> across the earth and there will never be kind of a moment of recompense um, for like what that has meant on a societal level or for the character individually. Do you think that's kind of a fair assessment? Absolutely. Uh, that's completely accurate. Uh, the uh, ancient Mesopotamians had uh, really uh, a much better grasp of the uh, environmental consequences of what they did than uh, uh, 
a lot of Americans did in the early to mid 20th century. Uh, you know, we, we just thought we could just um, uh, go on cutting more or less forever. And um, uh, uh, this was an act of civilizing the land and uh, in uh, the Paul Bunyan stories, there seems to be absolutely no thought whatsoever to the consequences or to what comes next. Um, it's just a given, you know. Is there a counterbalance to that amongst American artists or authors, whoever have you? I do remember for some of your discussion of the Hudson River painters, there is a sense of you know, they're kind of on board with Westward expansion, they believe in the project, but there is also this sense of foreboding in some of their work where there is perhaps something primeval that they're losing contact with that they're not totally comfortable with. Do you think there is a counterbalance in kind of the history of American culture to this kind of Paul Bunyan, um, no holds barred sense of expansion? Uh, yes, there, there absolutely is. And that runs through all of the paintings of the Hudson River School. They're uh, perhaps more elegiac than anything else. Um, they um, lament the, the loss of this primeval landscape uh, continually. But at the same time, um, it just seems almost inconceivable for them to challenge it. Uh, they uh, uh, lament all of the forest being chopped down, but yet uh, it never even occurs to them to uh, question westward expansion. Uh, that's simply a given. That is our destiny as Americans. And uh, uh, perhaps, you know, they didn't really even have the vocabulary or the conceptual apparatus to question it at that time. But um, uh, while they indulge the... Um, optimism uh, that accompanied westward expansion, uh, they uh, really regret the loss of uh, the primeval landscapes more than anything else. Of course, uh, we see this all very differently from the way they did. Uh, they thought of the Indians as part of nature. And now we know that uh, uh, the early American landscapes were not by any means untouched by humankind as they believed, and that the Indians themselves had had cities and um, empires uh, uh, in ways not so terribly different from the uh, Europeans, that this wasn't really uh, by any means a primeval uh, landscape. And uh, I think in our contemporary view, it's usually not uh, just a, anymore a question of uh, uh, preserving some primeval heritage as it is uh, learning to live uh, with and alongside and as part of nature. Um, but um, the Hudson River painters were very aware of both sides. What they didn't know how to do was to integrate these in a single picture. Right. And I suppose for a question that will take us towards the conclusion, um, 
we talked about this a little bit at the very beginning of our conversation, but there is kind of an epistemological current that runs through the book that asks the reader to consider the ways in which forests and trees kind of change the rules of the game um, in terms of how we think about ourselves, the world we live in, the structures we live in, what we're supposed to do, norms, etc. And I wanted to ask that if this book contains a call to action or several calls to action, um, what would it be or what would they be? Well, I think um, the most unique contribution uh, of the book is a call to rethink our relationship to the forest. I think that um, to simply view it in um, pragmatic terms and in terms of enlightened self-interest is not nearly enough. If we say that the forests help us by storing carbon, well, um, that's a step and a, a step in the right direction, but there's still a long way to go. Um, in order to inspire people on a um, larger scale, I think we need poetic conceptions of the forest. And uh, as I try to document, there have been many, including, among others, the classical, the Rococo, and the Gothic forest. Um, I think uh, it's a call for artists and poets and um, uh, foresters and uh, nature lovers to reimagine the forests and our uh, role with respect to them. Right. To essentially um, develop a poetic for the forests of the 21st century. And I think this book is an excellent start. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me.